If you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 4. We'll be in verse 12. Now, the, the title of this message is Jesus, the Dawning Light. And what Matthew wants us to see is that Jesus fulfills the expectation of a dawning light both for Jew and Gentile. And if you don't know, we are Gentiles. Unless you happen to be of Jewish descent, you are a Gentile. So it's the Jew and everybody else. Uh, now, how does Jesus do this? How is he this light of hope? Well, he preaches the good news of the kingdom. First and foremost, he preaches the good news of the kingdom. And second, he's going to prove that message with miracles. Now, this good news, just so you know, it is a call to do basically the same thing, but in two different parts. Uh, it is a call to turn away from sin, and it's a call to follow Jesus. That is the gospel. Now, what does that mean for us today? Well, we have this privilege to hear the same call, the same summons to turn from sin, to follow Jesus, to embrace a glad purpose of making disciples. It's a purpose that can only be fulfilled by telling others about Jesus. Uh, I'm curious, and you can raise your hands. How many of you are, are and you, I, I'm not going to make fun of you, but I'm, I'm a nerd. And so I read all of the Lord of the Rings. So it's J.R.R. Tolkien's trilogy. Has anybody else actually read all those books? Okay, there's, there's uh, two and a half. Uh, how many of you have seen the Lord of the Rings movies? Uh, there we go. It, it's more efficient. Charlie got a smile on his face. So maybe it was just uh, quicker to watch the movie than read the book. If you've not seen the movie there, it's an excellent an epic movie. I say epic movie. It's movies. There's three of them. Uh, but the first one is called The Fellowship of the Ring. And I'm not going to give you a whole lot of spoilers, but what happens in this is there's a lot that goes on at the beginning of the movie from uh, a special ring being found uh, to this hobbit named Frodo and all of a sudden his life getting turned upside down as he learns that these evil creatures are hunting him because they want to steal this special ring and he has a journey that is just met with one difficulty after another and these narrow escapes and he has to trust this weird and ugly man named Strider who he'll find out is, is more than what he seems later. But all of these difficulties bring him to this amazing city called Rivendell. And it feels like this in, in incredible story happens in about the first you know, hour or so of the movie, the first several chapters of the book. But what you find out is that's not the story. That's just all the stuff that needed to happen to get to the story. Because it is in Rivendell that a fellowship or a group commit to do whatever it takes to destroy the one ring. They will work together, risking their lives to go to the evil land of Mordor and destroy this ring. And a lot of stories do that. A lot of stories will have a bunch of things that happen to happen first in order to prepare us for the real story. Like think in your minds of some of the movies or books that you treasure and they'll be that. It'll, it'll be a lot of things to introduce you to who are the characters and what's going on and what's the big problem until now the real story is going to actually begin. And that's exactly what happens in the Gospel of Matthew. It's no secret that J.R.R. Tolkien was a Christian and his works were deeply influenced by the Bible. Um, 
and, and I think he gets some of the building and puts it in his story from the Gospels. Think about it. Up to this point, we have learned that Jesus is in the lineage of both David and of Abraham. We have seen his miraculous birth as he comes to, to planet earth, you know, in the Virgin Mary. And he's going to be Emmanuel, God with us. And then we have seen how God sovereignly brought these wise men from afar to worship him. And then protected Jesus from Herod who wanted to destroy him by moving his son into Egypt for a time. And then we saw how Jesus is uh, heralded or announced by this incredible man named John. We think of him as John the Baptist, but his name was just John, uh, son of Zechariah, and he, he was a preacher and a baptizer. We saw how Jesus came and was baptized to fulfill all righteousness and announced as the Son of God. And then last week, Jeff did such a good job showing us that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights and that he withstood the temptations the whole time. All of that leads up to now we're ready for the real story to begin. We, all, we needed to know this, to consider who Jesus is, to have this background so that we can get to today when he's ready to start his ministry as the Christ, as the Messiah. And so today we're going to see the son do three things. He's going to rise, he's going to invite, and he's going to proclaim. He's going to rise, he's going to invite, and he's going to proclaim. Because this is God's word, I invite you to stand just in honor of our Lord and Savior as we read from Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 12. God's word says this. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogue and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. Great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan." 
Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you, Jesus, that you have given us precious truth to know who you are and and that now we see the time has come for you to begin your great work, your ministry here announcing and beginning the kingdom of heaven on earth. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd use this time to shape us, to mold us, to, to claim our hearts as yours and to make us true followers of Jesus. I ask this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, first, Jesus the Son, S-O-N, rises. Look in verse 16 again in Matthew 4. We read in verse 16, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Now, what Matthew is doing is picking up you know, really where he's left off at this transition point and showing us once again how Jesus fulfills the great hope, the great expectation of the Old Testament. But it's a little interesting because all Jesus does is move back to his hometown and then he moves, you know, to a a place on the Sea of Galilee called Capernaum. Now, if you're like me and you've got a, a physical Bible, in the back are maps, And this is one of those times where it's actually really helpful to look at the map. So if you have a Bible, look at the maps. If you don't, you'll just have to take my word for it and check me later. But what's going on here? Well, Nazareth, the little town where Mary and Joseph moved to, is west of the Sea of Galilee, kind of between the Mediterranean Sea and the Sea of Galilee. And Capernaum is a town right on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And you have to know your geography because Jesus makes this move for a very specific reason. You might hear somebody say, well, maybe Jesus just wanted to be in a city where he could get more work. After all, he was a carpenter and this would get him more work. Um, You might hear, well, he knows he's about to start his ministry and little old Nazareth is such a dinky place. He wants to go where, where there are more people and he can do better ministry. But we don't have to wonder why Jesus chose to move to Capernaum. Matthew tells us that this was to fulfill what was prophesied in Isaiah. And it's from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 and 2, those verses about the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. And if you have those maps, you'll look and you can find that these two tribes were farthest in the north. First there was Zebulun and then Naphtali, the farthest to the north. And here's what's going on. In Isaiah's time, Isaiah had a a difficult message to preach. And it was a message of, hey, Israel... You need to return to the Lord. Hey, Judah, you need to return to the Lord. And Israel was so hard-hearted in Isaiah's time that they refused to listen. And so God was going to punish them, and he punished them in the form of an invading army called the Assyrians. And the Assyrians came from the north. They followed the Tigris and Euphrates River, came over and down into Israel. So being that they attacked from the north... What territories are the first to feel the blow of the Assyrians? Well, it's the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. 
They got hit by the enemy when the enemy was at its strongest. And so they felt the worst of the blow from the Assyrian Empire. The punishment was swift and harsh. That's why they are called the land of darkness and death. It it was so uh, quick and so fast. Life as they knew it was just overturned. And if they weren't slaughtered, they were taken off into exile. And not just exile, but to make sure that they couldn't amount a successful rebellion, the Assyrians scattered them throughout their known empire so that they couldn't unite with their fellow Jews and attempt to overthrow the Assyrians. So what's Matthew saying about this? Well, Matthew is saying the light has dawned. That that ancient land that was so punished, so harshly treated, that that felt the, the Lord's punishment, that land of Zebulun and Naphtali is now gonna experience hope. And he connects it to the fact that Nazareth was in the ancient territory of Zebulun. And Capernaum was in the ancient territory of Naphtali. So Jesus moves from his hometown, essentially, over by the sea. And it's not for political reasons or for economic reasons or even to get a big following. It's because he is fulfilling this great hope of a light dawning on a people who have, for hundreds of years, Isaiah was written some 700 years before this, experienced nothing but darkness and death. This prompts basically two questions. The first goes like this. Did Jesus know what he was doing? And the second is, well, what exactly is the darkness? So first, did Jesus know what he was doing? Um, Absolutely. No doubt about it. A hundred percent, Jesus knew what he was doing. You think about it. Sometimes it can kind of seem like Jesus is just going to kind of go through his life and accidentally fulfill scripture or something, you know, Uh, just, well, maybe Jesus just moved to Capernaum. No, 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 no. Jesus is intentionally fulfilling scripture. He knows very well what he's doing. And it is because he knows his role. He knows where this road's going to end. He knows the mission God has put on his life. And Matthew has belabored this. The things that happen to Jesus, the things that take place, they are no accident. If, If we were to go back through... We have had so many times, hold your place there in Matthew 4, and I'm going to give you just quick verses to flip back over to. Go to Matthew chapter 1 verse 22. There, Matthew claims that Jesus' birth fulfilled the expectation of a child born of a virgin, Emmanuel, God with us. Go to Matthew 2 verse 6. There, Jesus fulfilled the promise of a Messiah born in David's hometown in Bethlehem. That's fulfilling Micah 5 too. Go to Matthew chapter 2 verse 15. There, Jesus fulfilled the prophecy that God's son would come out of Egypt. That fulfills Hosea 11 verse 1. Go to Matthew chapter 2 verse 18. There, the very wrath of Herod fulfills the prophecy of mourning 
by the prophet Jeremiah. It fulfills Jeremiah 31 verse 15. Go to Matthew chapter 3 verse 1. There, John the Baptist fulfills the promise of a herald to go before the Messiah, fulfilling Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3. And then we get to verses 15 and 16 in Matthew chapter 4 that fulfill Isaiah 9, 1 and 2, where Jesus lives in the ancient territory of Zebulun when he's in Nazareth, and then the ancient territory of Naphtali when he moves to Capernaum. Why would I do this? Think about this, guys. This is way too much fulfillment to be an accident. This this didn't just happen. We're not going to find someone else in history who could just stumble his way into fulfilling this much scripture in this specific way. Only Jesus could be the Messiah. And he knew exactly what he was doing. You see, we need to consider this the story not just of the disciples, not just of uh, a lot of ancient Roman tradition. This is the story of one hero, and his name is Jesus, and he has come to fulfill the Father's will by the power of the Spirit that you and I might be saved. There is so much intentionality that we can trust he is the one he claims to be. But it continues, because... Matthew claims Jesus has brought hope in the form of a dawning light on a land of darkness. And that's a big claim because we've talked about how bad it was for Zebulun and Naphtali. So what kind of darkness is Matthew and is Isaiah talking about? Some have said, well, maybe it's a darkness of ignorance. You know, the, the Assyrians had this policy of importing people to lands that they conquered. And maybe this is a way of saying, hey, these people just didn't know anything about God. And now, now Jesus is there, so they can. Well, well maybe. And, and it is true that when a prophet comes out of Nazareth, it is a shocking thing. If you remember from John chapter 1, Nathaniel, when he hears that Jesus has come from Nazareth, is going to say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's just such a shock that there could be any learned person from that area of the country. But I don't think primarily this is a darkness of ignorance. What about a darkness of political upheaval? We have read how wicked King Herod was and how he... In, in paranoia, wiped out all the male children in the town of Bethlehem. It, it was a time not unlike what we might call the dark ages, the, the medieval period of history. But I think the darkness that Matthew's speaking of is more than political darkness. You see, I think Jesus came to address the deepest darkness there is. And in a word, it is your darkness. And it's my darkness. It's the darkness of sin. There is a root problem in all of us that has to be dealt with. And and in order for it to be dealt with, there has to be a person who can shed light on the situation and then deal with it at its core. And that is the hope Jesus came to announce. The hope is in Jesus Christ, when we decide to turn away from our sin and follow Jesus. That's the great light. That's the expectation. That's what people need, even if they expected somebody to solve their political problems or their education problems or their social problems. At the heart of it, Jesus knew their deepest need was forgiveness. 
That's why in verse 17, Matthew summarizes Jesus' entire preaching ministry with these words. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Probably sounds a little familiar if you remember back from Matthew chapter 3 in verse 2, we heard John the Baptist summarized his preaching ministry this way. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the same message. (laughs) I, I laugh sometimes You ever, you know, maybe hear a sermon and then read your Bible and then turn on the radio and it feels like you've heard the same message three times and it's like, okay, Holy Spirit, I get it, I get it. I I must need to hear those words. I think something of the same thing is going on here. God knows we need to hear it's time to return to God. Repentance, we learned a few weeks ago that Greek is uh, the idea of a complete change of mind. And it, it connected back to a Hebrew word. It's kind of fun to say it's shuv. But the idea is just return. Come back. It's time to come back to God. To turn away from sin and return to God. This is our hope. Even today in 21st century America, the great hope of our whole nation, of our whole planet, is when we would hear as individuals the call, the summons to turn away from our sin. Repentance, as just a review, remember, includes four parts. It includes conviction, sorrow, confession, and fruit. And Christian, your life is supposed to begin with repentance and then you're supposed to continue in it. It's not like you're supposed to uh, start turning away from sin and then at some point you kind of grow out of it. Uh, We had a great time in the men's Sunday school class this morning and I benefit so much listening to some men who are older than me and have walked with the Lord. And they say, you know, the idea of turning away from sin, of, of fighting against temptation, that doesn't ever stop. You, you have to keep fighting. It, it, it's not going to be that you just get done with this thing called repentance. I want you to picture something in your mind that I have heard before and it was very helpful to me. When you're born, it's as if every human being has an initial address in a town called Sin. We'll just call it Sin Town. And when you choose by the grace of God to trust Jesus... And to turn away from your sin, it's as if you've been given the deed to a new address. Your home is now in a place called heaven. And the rest of your life is a journey away from sin town on your way to heaven as you follow your leader. And his name is Jesus. Sadly, and too often times, we make this habit of on this journey saying, well, well give, me, give me just a weekend's uh, vacation in Sin Town. Let me, let me go take a break back there. It just, it sounds so good. They, they've got these lights and these things that I used to like to do, and it's going to be so much fun. Let me just go back there for a little bit. And that's not how you were made to live. You were made to be on a journey with your Savior toward heaven, leaving Sin Town. Christian, leave sin town. Leave it behind. Don't go back there. You're going to be tempted. I'm tempted. We're all tempted, but don't go back there. There is not the blessing you think in that place. You are made for a better place. 
That's repentance. It is leaving it behind. So next then, the son invites. I love in the middle of this passage, verses 18 to 22, where we get two conversations with four Jewish men. You look in verse 19, Jesus will say these words, follow me. And then you look at how they respond. It says in verse 20 that they will follow him. And in verse 22, James and John will also follow him. I I just love this. And, And, you know, if you picture the scene, almost certainly Peter, Andrew, James, and John heard more from Jesus than just the few words, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Maybe not, but, but probably, and, and at least we know Andrew from John chapter 1 had had interactions with John the Baptist. They'd had interactions before with Jesus. Some have said that he might have, these, these four men might have heard as much as a year's worth of preaching and teaching before this moment. We're not sure, but it came down to one moment that Matthew wanted to be sure we didn't miss. There's Peter. There's Andrew. Later, there's James. There's John. They're on the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus comes to them, and he says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And I love digging into the language just a little bit, because that word follow it's actually a, a bit of a slang word in the Greek. Not, not as if Jesus said something wrong, just it, it's kind of a street term. Uh, later, when Jesus calls Matthew to follow him, the tax collector and the one who wrote this book, it's going to be a very formal follow me. This word, though, is informal. This word could roughly be translated, come on. That's it. Jesus is with some fishermen. He says, okay, guys, come on. And they leave their nets and they follow him. And I love it because it just so fits the four men he's talking to. Guys, it's time to come on. And and I think while there are, you know, some differences for sure, and we've got to be careful not to read too much in the text, I think Matthew is hinting in this passage about things that'll touch in depth later. I think he wants us to see in the conversations Jesus has with these four Jewish men something like what he's going to call all of us to do. And so the call to become a Christian necessarily includes a commitment to follow Jesus as the Lord of your life. Do you believe that? Do you believe that when you say, okay, Jesus, I'm going to come, I'm going to follow you, that you are committing to consider him the highest priority, the greatest, the, the, the very master of your existence? It's not just that Jesus says, hey, it's time to get out of sin town. He also says, you got a journey to go through and you're going to come and follow me. And that word can literally mean walking behind in the footsteps of. It's time to follow me. I have heard a few times that uh, people will say, well, well, you know, Jesus doesn't want you to clean up your life before you come to him. And, and I agree. Um, but then they'll say, you know, I came to him as a child 
so that he would save me. I, I asked him to be my savior. But it wasn't until much later in life that I committed to follow him as Lord. Or, or I'm praying that my friend will one day commit to follow him as Lord. And while I, I understand what the person is trying to say, biblically, there is no way to receive Jesus as Savior, but refuse to bow to him as Lord. He is the Lord. He is the Son of God. He is the one that we will read at the end of this, to whom is given all authority in heaven and on earth. So you can't pick and choose. You either come to him as he is, both for the salvation, for the forgiveness, but also in a commitment to follow him as Lord, or you're holding back and haven't yet come. You see, Peter and Andrew, James and John, I think it is somewhat symbolic that they decided right then there to, to leave their nets, to leave their father in their boat, and, and to follow Jesus. I don't want to take it too far, but I do think when they left their nets, that was in a way saying Jesus was more important than the way that they earned money. Jesus was more important than their occupation and that they would follow him even if it meant they wouldn't have as stable a career. We know that they certainly did not become wealthy when over the next three years they walked with Jesus. Have you made a commitment like that? Think about it. You work in a job and it comes to a decision and they're asking you, say, maybe to get a promotion, you've got to commit to being there every Sunday morning. And you kind of have this choice to make. Well, am I going to keep doing this job and keep moving up the ladder, but maybe have to miss church on Sundays? Or am I going to consider that Jesus says it's not good to give up the habit of meeting together? And I'm going to say, you know what, I can't take that promotion if it's going to require me work Sunday mornings. There are numerous ways. I had that very scenario happen to me when I was trying to get a job many years ago at Best Buy. It's in Louisville, Kentucky. I was going to work at the Geek Squad. Now, before you think that I know how to fix a computer, I don't know a thing. They just taught me how to sell stuff. So they don't teach you anything about how to actually fix things, just how to sell their products. But I was interviewing and they, they figured I could work in the Geek Squad and sport the tie and everything. But then it got to one question. They said, will you commit to be here every Sunday morning at nine o'clock? I said, why? I knew that Best Buy wasn't open. Then he said, well, that's when we do the company-wide staff meeting. And every person has to be at the company-wide staff meeting at nine o'clock Sunday mornings. No ifs, ands, or buts. And I was a young man, and this was a good job, and, and they were going to pay better than other jobs. And so I had to wrestle with this. You know, am I going to say yes, but then be out of church and, and out of the will of God? Or am I going to say no and then have to look potentially for another job? And so I, I went to the owner of the company and said, hey, I'd love to work for you. I, I can do a good job. I'm a hard worker. I just have one problem. I cannot work Sunday mornings. And as this old guy, he's, he's a great man and, uh, you know, kind of, kind of, brisk we'll say from Chicago and he kind of sniffs his nose and he looks at me and he goes okay and that was it <laughs> I was the first employee at that Best Buy that never had to work a Sunday morning and all I did was ask and uh, you know it was just God was kind and he took care of me uh, that day for sure but if you're a Christian I want you to consider when they left their nets 
That's just a symbol and a hint that following Jesus is going to have to be more important than how you make your money. Jesus will make it explicit in a few weeks when he says these words. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is where it gets practical. This is where the rubber starts meeting the road, and this is how good a teacher Jesus is. He knows it would be one thing to say, sure, Jesus, I'll follow you. Sure, I'll come. I'll come on, yeah. But Jesus says, okay, but how about with your wallet? How about with your occupation? How about with your source of income? Do you trust me that much to where if it's a choice between me and your job, you'll choose me? Oh, wait a minute, Jesus. Wait, wait, wait a minute now. Now you've gotten personal. Now you got a little tough. I don't know. Christian, I tell you, it's worth it. It really is. I'm not saying you can't work a job. I'm, I'm not saying, in fact, we will hear later in the New Testament that we are called to do our jobs to the glory of God, working as if for the Lord and not for men. I am saying that when you commit to follow Jesus, you have a superior allegiance to your Lord that supersedes even your career. And then they also left James and John, their father Zebedee. This might be even harder because Zebedee is a good man. By all accounts, he's raising his boys right. They're working with him. They've learned a trade. They are in line likely to inherit a very lucrative business from a godly father. And Jesus says to them, come on. And they came. In leaving Zebedee, and leaving that boat, it reminds us that submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ means we have a superior allegiance to Jesus even than our families. Even in the relationships we treasure most. And I've got to ask this morning, Christian, do you believe that? Have you made that kind of commitment? If your family member asked you to do something that goes against the Bible, would you do it? Or would you say, I can't do that. I'm a Christian. I follow Jesus. Many of us find our identities in one of these two things, either our jobs or our families, our, our money or our relationships. If you're a follower of Jesus, your identity before anything else is in Christ. That's who you are. You are a Christian, a follower of Christ. And so um, consider just these rapid questions. Uh, do you love others by first loving Jesus? If you lost a family member, would you still follow Jesus? Is Jesus your Lord, or is he just a way to make you look better to someone you care about? Jesus will later put it this way. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus isn't saying to hate your family. He's saying, come on, follow me. I'm your new number one. Everything else is under me. And in actuality, what we'll learn throughout the New Testament is the most loving thing we can do for other people is to love Jesus first. Spouses, you know, those of you who are married in here, if you really want to love your spouse, love Jesus first, and you'll be doing the best you can for them. Your children, your, your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandchildren, if you want to love them best, make Jesus number one in your life, and you will love them best. So Jesus tells four fishermen, come on, and they do. That's the invitation. And finally, the son 
proclaims. I'm saying that the sun, S-O-N, is rising over Galilee, and Matthew tells us how with a few key words. Look back in verse 23. He just says that he, he went, but he goes throughout Galilee doing three things. He, he teaches, he preaches, and he heals. And teaching and preaching, that's just a way of saying teaching is what he did in the synagogues. Preaching was public preaching out to the masses. I love it because it's a way of saying it's for everyone. Those who, you know, ha had a habit of going to church and those who didn't. He, Jesus didn't let a barrier stop the message getting out there. He, whether it was in the synagogue or out, will learn on a mountainside, Jesus was going to make sure that he preached. Now, what is so helpful in these words is that we get a hint of the mission of Jesus. When it says that he preached, there's a particular message. It is he is preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He is preaching the good news that the way to be part of the benevolent rule of God has appeared it's as if finally there's a door open that anyone can walk through to be made right with God and to live with him forever. And Jesus has said, now, finally, yes, here it is. Come on. That is the message. And I would uh, like to try to prove to you that that is the very central mission of Jesus, to, to announce and to open that door into the kingdom. And he does something else in this passage. And I'm going to suggest that this something else is all in support of that central mission. He does some healing. And boy, is it amazing. I mean, look at all. Healing of every disease and every affliction and of, of diseases and pains and those oppressed by demons and epileptics and paralytics. And he healed them all. And that word healing is the word restore. He, he's restored what was broken or what was cursed, what was sick, what was previously possessed by the enemy. He's saying, I, I'm going to restore you and those places. Now, why all these miracles? Why all this restoration? Well, I think the miracles are to prove the message. The miracles are to demonstrate that the message is trustworthy and true. The mission is the message, not the miracles. The miracles support the message. You see, this is so important to grasp because I think it's easy to get off and make the miracles, make the healing, make the, the uh, social efforts the mission, but it's, it's not. And, and let me show you where Matthew demonstrates this. It's a little subtle, but it's powerful. Look back in verse 23 in Matthew 4. I'm going to read it again. It says, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Okay, that's Matthew 4, verse 23. Now flip over to Matthew chapter 9. A little preview. In Matthew chapter 9, we're just going to look at one verse, and it's verse 35. This says, And Jesus 
went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. It's almost identical, right? I mean, it's, it's basically the same verse in Matthew 4.23 as in Matthew 9.35. Why would he do that? Well, Flip a little bit in your Bible and see what happens between there. In Matthew chapter 5, we're going to begin the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7, it's all the Sermon on the Mount. And then, look at Matthew 8. My, my Bible, this is the ESV, has the titles, Jesus cleanses a leper. The faith of a centurion. Jesus heals many. The cost of following Jesus. Jesus calms a storm. Jesus heals two men with demons. Jesus heals a paralytic. Jesus calls Matthew. Jesus heals two blind men. Jesus heals a man unable to speak. You see it? Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the message. Matthew 8 and 9 is the healing. And this pattern is going to repeat itself over and over again. You could flip through Matthew 10 and 11. Jesus is going to teach his disciples and he's going to praise the ministry of John the Baptist. Matthew 12, Jesus is going to do some more healings. But this time they're going to be on a Sabbath and they're going to cause a big controversy when he heals on the Sabbath. Matthew 13, we're going to go back to the message. Jesus is going to preach the message again, but this time in parables. Matthew 14, Jesus is going to do miracles like walking on the water, feeding the 5,000, and healing the sick. Matthew chapters 15 and 16, it's the message. Beware of the Pharisees and Sadducees, and this is the cost of following Jesus. Matthew 17, it's more miracles. He's going to heal, he's going to feed, he's going to be transfigured, he's going to cast out a demon that the disciples cannot. Matthew 18, 19, and 20, it's more message. The greatness of the kingdom, the nature of the church, marriage, divorce, true riches, laboring in the kingdom. Matthew, the end of 20 and 21, it's more miracles. Healing the blind men, coming to Jerusalem, cleansing the temple, cursing the fig tree. Matthew 22, 23, 24, 25, it's the message. Woe to the Pharisees for opposing Jesus. And it's the coming judgment and the final new heavens and new earth. And Matthew climaxes all of it then with what happens to Jesus when he's betrayed and he dies on the cross and three days later he rises from the grave. So the whole gospel from here on out is going to be message supported by miracles. Message supported by miracles. Message supported by miracles. He wants you to see that when he comes, his mission is to speak and bring about the gospel. And he's going to prove it's true with signs that only God could do. I have found, generally, that Christians, we struggle in, in one of two ways. Some of us know our theology pretty well. Praise the Lord. And, and we can you know, speak the gospel pretty clearly, praise the Lord. And, and we can give the right answer in a Bible study, praise the Lord. But when it comes to showing acts of compassion and love to those who are down and out, we would probably be described as cold, aloof, uncaring, too busy, something like that. We're, we're all about the theology, but the loving acts are, are so far removed in our minds from the central mission that we just kind of shrug our shoulders and, and figure that the, 
different programs that the government has, they'll, they'll take care of those kind of things. If you're in that camp, I want you to consider that Jesus decided to support his message, the message that everyone on planet Earth needs to hear with acts of incredible loving kindness. You, you think about it, he could have done all kinds of miracles, but the most prevalent was meeting people in their darkest place and deciding to do restorative acts to show them that the kingdom is breaking in, that the rule of God is returning, that there is life again. And I'm gonna show you, paralytic man, I'm gonna tell you to stand up and walk and it's gonna happen and you're gonna believe me when I say your sins are forgiven. Christian, it's no accident you are similarly called to back up your message with acts of compassion and love to a lost and dying world. All of us, I think, who have cars have a volume knob in our car, right? Some of you pop in CDs. I think some of you don't even know what a CD is anymore. That's okay. It used to be a round thing. Before that, it was a cassette. Some of you don't know what cassettes are. That's okay. Uh, there were different ways to listen to music, right? But all of us know what a volume knob is. If, if you don't know what a volume knob is, I'm sorry. You'll just have to tell me how in the world you turn the volume up in your car. But right, the volume knob is just very simple. You turn it one way, and the volume goes way up. And some of us have done it so much that we can't hear anything else. Uh, we have turned that volume knob way up. If you turn it the other way, the volume goes way down. Very simple. I'm telling you, Christian, your good deeds are a volume knob on the gospel. If you love people compassionately in ways that are even radical, when you tell them how much God loves them, that message is cranked way up. But if you're the type of Christian who is cold and, and ignores people and, and just generally has very few, make, makes very little effort to show the love of Christ to others, you know what you do when you tell that person, maybe that family member how much God loves them? You've turned the volume way down. And it's very hard to hear. I found there are many Christians uh, like me who struggle in that way. But there's another group of us that struggle. And that's the group that as Christians, we've kind of rewritten the mission Jesus gives us. We've decided that our mission is just to make the world a better place. And it's said a number of different ways. It's time to build the kingdom here. It's, it's time to restore the world. It's time to, um, you know, uh, uh, show the, the, the world everything. There's, there's all these different ways. Here's one way I've heard it said uh, frequently, and it is this. Preach the gospel always. When necessary, use words. Preach the gospel always. When necessary, use words. How many of you have heard that? Anybody heard that one before? Okay, several of you have. If, if you haven't, just plug your ears. It's a terrible saying. There is no way to preach the gospel without words. The only way to preach the gospel is with words that point to Jesus, who is the Savior and who alone can forgive us. You can do nice things all day long. You can get people off the street. You can get them into warm beds. You can give them warm meals. You can help in the education system. You can get people good education. And if that is it, you have just bless them on their way to hell. The only way to be forgiven is to place your faith in Jesus alone. That's the mission of Jesus, and that's the mission he leaves the church. So please, if you're in that category, continue to do the good deeds. Continue to love people, but don't miss that you are left here to be a fisher of men. What does that mean? That means inviting people to turn from their sin and to trust in the only one who can save them. That's the mission. 
That's the message. Now, we started with Lord of the Rings and, and this story where they, they come to this beautiful city called Rivendell. And I told you that that's where the story really began. And, and I want you at some point to watch the movie because it's just incredible. This little tiny hobbit has just been told that the ring he was carrying in his pocket is the ring that empowers the dark lord to dominate the earth. And I mean, you think about this, like, what this? Like, like, I mean, little old me, who was I to be carrying around this thing? And I mean, you can tell on his face, the first thing he wants to do is get as far away from that as possible. I don't want to touch that thing. I don't have anything more to do with it. And then they stand up and they call for volunteers. They want someone to have the guts to take that ring and destroy it. And Frodo listens as numerous strong men and wise people start to argue and bicker over who's the strongest and who's the best and who could do this. And he pipes up with his little voice, I will take it. I will take it. I will take the ring to Mordor. You see, it came down to a choice for this young man whether he was going to hear about this incredible opportunity, this, this dangerous quest, and go, okay, a little much, get a little too radical here. That's, that's not for me. You guys have fun. I'm going back to the Shire. Have a good time. Or he could say, you know what? Okay, I will take it. Christian, there is an unavoidable choice when you hear a message like this. And it's far more adventurous and far more real than a tale like Lord of the Rings. The choice is this. Jesus is saying, come on. Come on. I mean, seriously, come on. And it's so easy, especially in 21st century America, to say, oh, okay, Jesus, I like you. I, I mean, I'll, I'll go to church occasionally. You know, I'll, I'll occasionally put a little bit of money in. But, but what you're asking for, I mean, submitting to your lordship, telling other people about you, telling them they're going to hell unless they place their faith in you, that's, that's too much. I, I, I don't know. I'd rather go back to the Shire where it's, where it's easy and comfortable. Come on. Come on. You may be here this morning and you hardly knew what you were walking into, but I want you to hear for the first time that there is a God who loves you, who sent his son to say to you, come on, trust me, turn away from that sin, give me your life and I will save you and welcome you into a bigger adventure than you could ever imagine. Christians, for many of you, um, if you're like me, you may have been walking that journey from sin town to heaven and just, just gotten bogged down along the way or distracted. Maybe, maybe they're just things that have kind of crowded your mind and heart. And if, if Jesus said, hey, what about that thing when we agreed that you would be a fisher of men? You'd have to think long and hard about the last time that you actually told someone the gospel, that they were a sinner, they were doomed to face a wrath that they could not withstand, but God loved them so much, he sent his son to die on the cross in their place for their sins and to rise from the dead. How long has it been since you told someone that? We're gonna pray and, and close out this service and then Wes will come with a few announcements, but I want you to use this time to do some business with God. If you're here and you've never trusted the Lord Jesus with your life, I want you to respond to that invitation 
Come on. And it's very simple. You'll tell him your sins. You'll ask his forgiveness. You'll see him as the only savior and you'll commit to follow him. That's it. And we'll walk through it here momentarily. But Christian, use this time to pray and ask God to remind you of the adventure you're called to walk on. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. I am reminded so many times, Jesus, how just incredible this word is. I, I, I mean, you, you, you come on the scene and it's just so big and you're fulfilling scripture with moves and you're, you're, you're doing these incredible ministries and then you take time just to talk to four fishermen. Holy Spirit, I would ask right now that you would come into this place and you would talk to us in our hearts, have a conversation with us. Touch us in such a way that we know it's you and show us what you'd have us to do. If you've never trusted Jesus as the Lord of your life, right now where you are, I want you to pray. It doesn't have to be these words, but something like this. God, so much of my life, I've lived in that sin town. I've done things I know that don't please you. Forgive me. Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for my sins and rose from the grave. I want you to be my savior. And say, Jesus, I commit to follow you as the Lord of my life. With every head bowed and eye closed, if you prayed that prayer and meant it this morning, would you have the guts just to look up at me and kind of kind of show me your hands so that I know you prayed that prayer. Anybody prayed that prayer? Okay, I see you. Okay. Praise the Lord. Let's spend a moment just praying for this individual. Father God, I pray for this individual right now. I ask, please, your blessing on their life. I pray that you'd give them uh, the courage to walk with you. I pray, Jesus, this, this is sincere, that you would do it. You would save them. You would be their savior and their Lord and, and that they would know that you alone love them for eternity. Etch it in their hearts right now the way they know for sure that they are forgiven and they are yours forever. Christian, if, if you're like me and you've struggled at times in your walk with um, just not wanting to be a fisher of men. <laughs> just, just, you know there are opportunities, you see them, but, but you just, no, not right now, that's too radical. If you would like prayer for boldness in sharing the gospel with every head bowed, every eye closed, just look up at me so that I can pray for you. I see that hand, I see you, 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 I see you. Father God, there are some whose hearts you've moved right now to ask for boldness. Jesus, we're doing it right here. We believe that you rose from the dead. We believe that you did the miracles the Bible claims you did. We believe that you have 
saved us by your grace. We believe that you've called us to be fishers of men. We believe that this is a work we cannot accomplish on our own, but we need your courage and your help. And Holy Spirit, I ask for power. I ask, please, that you would not let us say no to you, that you'd make the opportunities so in our face that we'd have to say yes, that you would line things up to where, and give us the words, don't let us cower in fear, but help us to be able just to tell someone that you love them and you died on the cross for their sins. Give us, please, Holy Spirit, that boldness we need to tell someone how much you love them. I ask that you'd have that way in me and that way in us as a church and especially on those who specifically asked for that boldness, Lord. God, again, we thank you. This Christian life is a journey and we need you every step of the way. And, and I just beg that you would redeem us again, buy us out of that sin town and make us again yours so that we could walk with you. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name I pray. Amen. I hope you're blessed.